Good morning, Four Corners. What a blessing it is to hear each other sing God's praises. How much God is glorified through the singing of his people as we, as we hear to our left and to our right and in front of us, maybe behind us, we hear uh, the people of God making much of God, magnifying him and praising his name. That's always a blessing. I hope that you enjoy singing these praises to God as we meet from week to week. It's a special time to gather. You know, we ride down the road singing these praises in our cars uh, or maybe listening to them while we run or whatever. Uh, but how different and how unique and special it is when we gather together as the people of God and we are doing that as a body. So what a blessing to worship him this morning. I want to begin by thanking Mike for uh, leading us through Psalm 23, uh, through the, these, uh, first, these last two Sundays as he's preached through Psalm 23. These have been really edifying weeks, and what a fitting way to begin the new year, too, as you think about God as our shepherd. Not only as we think about that personally, that each of us individually who belong to God, we call God my shepherd, and Jesus, of course, is our good shepherd, uh, but even as a church, collectively, as we kind of alluded to last week during our congregational update meeting, um, that this is uh, a time of transition for our church. And so we're looking to God to shepherd us as sheep. We as a church are his sheep. We're a local flock. And so, you know, Peter, Peter says to the elders in First uh, Peter 5, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And so we're here, a little flock of God, and we're looking to the, the shepherd to guide us and lead us uh, in the right way. And so do pray for us as, as elders. We, we certainly need it. We need our shepherd. We're, we're under shepherds, but we're always sheep. And so as, as the elders of the church, we need your prayers that God would give us his grace to shepherd this local flock as we follow him as sheep. So today we move into a new series on the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And so you'll see these posters scattered around here. We've had the Sermon on the Mount up for a long time, uh, pretty much throughout the entirety of 2017, starting, uh, I think, of late January it was, and then ending right before Advent, conveniently. Uh, thank God for his providence, and it ended right there. So we did Advent throughout the month of December. And then Mike has shared uh, with us Psalm 23, and now today we begin our series on Genesis. And Genesis simply means beginning. And it gets this title in the English language from the Greek Old Testament, which goes all the way back to the original Hebrew title, Bereshit. And Bereshit simply means in the beginning, in the ancient for the ancient Hebrews, they would name the beginning of books based on the first words of the book. That's a novel idea. Uh, they wouldn't just go sort of, what's the theme of this book? Let me name it based on a theme. But they would start with just the opening words. Sometime, sometimes it would be uh, one word or a couple of words, sometimes a string of words. Exodus has the first, basically almost the first sentence there is the beginning. That's the name for Exodus. And so that's the way the Hebrews named their books. And this got carried over into a more of a thematic title, uh, beginning in the Greek Old Testament, and then that carried over through to the Latin Vulgate and now into English, Genesis. In addition to being the first book of the Bible and the Old Testament, 
Genesis is also the first book of what we call the Pentateuch. Now, Pentateuch, that probably is a a fancy word. Maybe many of us have not ever heard of it, but it just simply means a five-volume work. And so we have the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as one set of five books. Essentially, these five books, historically, for Jews and Christians, have been understood as one unity. These five books really are one book, the Pentateuch, also known as the Law of Moses. And so these first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are considered the law. Although we don't have in Genesis these laws like we do, say, uh, articulated very clearly in Leviticus or reiterated in Deuteronomy, all of this is considered the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Moses. It's referred to as the law or the law of Moses throughout the Old Testament, and we see Jesus himself referring to it as the law of Moses. So Genesis would have been written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written by Moses largely, and and perhaps um, some of the material that Moses had was gathered through oral tradition and written documents before, much like Luke had composed his gospel, as we read at the beginning uh, of, of Luke's gospel, those first four verses in the New Testament. So we have Moses, though, as the writer of these first five books. Moses as the author of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when did Moses write this book and to whom? Who was the audience who received Genesis first? We're going to receive Genesis over the next 14 years. <laughs> probably, not, probably not that long, but I don't know how long. But we're going to receive Genesis today and next week and in the weeks and months and and, and I would say probably years ahead, Um, maybe year ahead. But we will be receiving Genesis now. But who were the first folks to receive this book? And it would have been those Israelites who had come out of Egypt. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had led them across the Red Sea, part of the sea for them. He had fed them with manna in the wilderness. And he had judged them for their sin. About a year after the Red Sea incident, they come up to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And they won't go in because they're afraid of the giants in the land. There's two, Joshua and Caleb, two brave men, not brave in themselves, but confident in the Lord, who believe that God has given us this land, let's take it. And the people were afraid and faithless. And so God judged them. And so they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years before ultimately Joshua would take the people of God into the promised land, the land of Canaan. So it was during this time, it was during this period of time between the Exodus and between Moses' death That Genesis is written. And so it is written to these Israelites who are encamped in the wilderness, probably under a starry night quite like this, uh, who are looking up into the heavens and seeing the heavens as the heavens declare the glory of God, who would have read first or who would have had read to them first these words that we encounter in Genesis. These were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
These were the people who had really forgotten much of their past. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And there was Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, we have the story about how Joseph ends up in Egypt and his brothers end up there as well. And then there was that period of slavery in Egypt. And so the people really had largely forgotten their beginnings. And so Genesis reiterates for them who they are as a people. That they are a distinct people to whom God has made a promise through their ancestor Abraham. And so these are the people who heard these words at the beginning of Genesis. Berashit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. These were the people who heard in their language the word of God and God's promises to their fathers. Last week, Walt, one of our elders, commented on my desires. He came up uh, during, at the, during the congregational update. He mentioned uh, a book by Wayne Grudem that he wants to bring the guys through who are involved in business. And I encourage any of you who are to, to be involved in that. I think that will be very edifying for you. But he commented, as he was talking about that book, he commented on my desire to bring us back to the basics. This was something that when I came in, uh, fortunately, I'm thankful to God for this. I came in on the Gospel of John on, about two and a half years ago when I started uh, here as, as your pastor. And that was about two and a half years ago. We started in John 15. And that John, John is really a basic kind of book. I mean, we, we've, I don't know, maybe you've been part of a, a tradition or a church in the past where you would hand out a copy of John's Gospel. Or if you were evangelizing, you were talking to someone about the Lord, and you had one thing to say, that, say to them, to, to point them next steps, you'd say, go read John's gospel. So it was great to come into that and to be able to pick up with, I am the vine and you are the branches, and to take that all the way up through the end of 21. And it was during that time and even after that, that it really uh, was a burden for me to lay a fresh foundation for us as a local church. And for us to focus in on biblical and theological basics, to focus in on those passages that really form a foundation for us moving forward. And so from John, we moved into Ephesians on the family. This is sort of the, the, the nutshell passage on God's intentions for the family. And so we spent three months looking at Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4. And then from there, we went to Paul's epistle to Titus. And the reason why that is so foundational is because it brings together these very important aspects of the Christian life. God's grace and an understanding of God's grace and the good deeds and good works and holiness that God has called us to. And so how do we relate these two things? God's grace and our responsibility and the holiness of life that God has called us to. And in so many ways, that was theologically foundational for us in thinking about the Christian Life And then, of course, what is more foundational than the Sermon on the Mount? And so over the last year, we have had the privilege of walking through this wonderful teaching of our Lord. And Genesis is about as foundational as you can get because it brings us back to the beginning. This is both canonically and chronologically the most foundational, the most basic place you can be. So we'll be here for a little while uh, in this book of Genesis. 
Let me read this quote to you from Kent Hughes. I think it succinctly captures uh, what uh, I'm saying there. What, this is what he says. What we know about God, <coughs> about creation, about ourselves, and about salvation begins in Genesis. It provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. And I haven't even go so far as to say, probably in my own personal life, no book has captured my imagination and has captured me in so many ways as the book of Genesis. And from, from the very beginning, as you get God's creation all the way to the end with God's incredible caring providence over Joseph and over those sons of Jacob who are just filled with sin. I mean, it's incredible when you get to the story of Jacob and his sons and Jacob and his two wives and his two wives' maidservants and all the craziness that you get to there and to see God's hand in speaking everything into existence at the beginning of the book and to see his hand in shepherding his people at the end of the book. What an incredible piece of God's word to spend our time chewing upon and meditating upon. So here's the question that I want to begin with today. Where does the beginning begin? Let me say it this way. If Genesis is the beginning, which it is, if Genesis is the beginning, where does it begin? Where does it start? The answer to this question is simple and clear. God. Genesis begins with God. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Starting with God. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This will be a short reading, so it'll be a short stand. Genesis 1-1. And I should say, I'll preface this by saying, I mentioned this with the band last week, this is not the pace with which we will go through the entire book, okay? I need to say that. That's very important. Uh, this, these first three chapters may go quite slower uh, than the rest of the book, but at least for today, we are going to look only at, well, we'll dip into the next few, but we're going to focus on these, this first verse, which I'll read now. This is God's word. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can be seated. Let's pray. Ask for God's blessing on our time and ask that God will speak into each of our lives uniquely. <clears throat> our Father, what an incredible thing it is to read these words. What an incredible thing it is to preach these words and to hear these words read and to hear these words preached, to have access to these words. Father, how incredibly powerfully these words speak into our culture, into our world today, into the intellectual atmosphere of our world. And Father, how incredibly these words speak into our problems, how they speak into our apathy and they speak into our fears and our worries. And how they speak into our idolatries. Father, would you just speak? 
as you spoke light into existence, as you spoke all things into existence, would you speak into our hearts today? Father God, we pray. We know that this is your word inspired by your spirit. We know that the same spirit who inspired it is the spirit who convicts the world of sin. And God, we pray that you would root out sin from our lives, Father. We know that if we could see our hearts, we would be so ashamed before you, God. We know the depth of our depravity, the depth of our sinfulness, and how easily, how easily, given the right set of temptations, apart from your preserving grace, we would fall away in a moment. Father, you preserve us, you keep us, and you protect us from those things which would cause us to crumble. So we pray that today you would begin this series well, Father, that you would begin it well in each heart, that you would work in weakness and that you would glorify yourself, that you would build us up. We are greatly in need, God, of you. So help us, Father. Help us see you clearly. Help us to know you more intimately. And help us to live for you more faithfully, God, we pray. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we have the first great truth. Before we've gone any further, we have the first great truth that we can glean from Genesis. And it's this. It starts with God. And before we dig into this text this morning, let me ask this basic question, just as an introductory matter. Let me ask you this question. What does it look like to start with God? We have to get this one thing straight before we go into any of the details. If the Bible starts with God, if Genesis here starts with God, then that tells us that that is the only starting point. So what does it look like to start with God? God. And I think this is especially relevant as we move into a new year because it is quite possible that some of our New Year's resolutions are still going. At least at this point, maybe. I think the average, they say, I've heard this thing, maybe eight days or so. I don't know if it even lasts that long. Um, and maybe you're beginning to see, if you are a, an a, avid gym goer, maybe you're beginning to see that the, the attendance that first week has now dipped down and there is no longer quite as many people there as before. What do we think about this new year? How are we sort of setting the tone? Is 2018 for you starting with God? So what does it look like to start with God? Well, I think you could treat this from a number of directions. You can treat a number of aspects here. The first is to just think about our corporate worship. And maybe you've been attending Four Corners for a while, or maybe you, uh, you've just started coming, and you're wondering kind of why we do what we do in corporate worship. Why is it that we start with a, with a call to worship? And why is it that we go from a call to worship to a song of adoration, 
And the reason for that is because we are trying, although in a frail and imperfect way, we are trying as a church to start with God and not ourselves. Now here's, here's two of the things that can easily happen in churches. And maybe you've experienced this in churches which you've been a part of. And that is that churches, it starts with me. And here are a few ways that we begin to see that. Sometimes corporate worship can begin with us in that it is about our experiences. And so we talk about how is your experience of worship today, right? We want to create the right worship experience. What does that communicate? It communicates that church is about you, that church is about me, but it's not. It's entirely about God. It's not about my experience. And sometimes we understand that churches are about our entertainment. And so the idea is you come and you get entertained and you get some things that, that you, you know, it's, it's a nice time to sit and gather and enjoy this and enjoy that and have these conversations. And it, it really becomes a matter of entertainment. But church is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our fancies. It's not about our enjoyment and our entertainment in this way, enjoyment understood in this way. It is about God. Just as the Bible begins with God, we must always begin with God and make it about him. What about our prayers? One of the things that we looked at we were going in through the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. We spent quite a bit of time looking at the topic of prayer as we came to the Lord's Prayer. And what was the one thing that we constantly saw as we went through the Lord's Prayer was this, that we adore before we ask. So you get those first three petitions. And what is very clear from those is that we start with God, our Father, who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, your, you, your prayer begins with God. It doesn't begin with me. It doesn't begin with God. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Help me, help me, help me. I need my daily bread. It doesn't begin there. We adore before we ask. So our prayers must start with God. Just as the Bible starts with God, our prayers must start with God. What about our Bible reading? Now, this is one area I think maybe we haven't thought of. Is your reading of the Bible about this or this? Let me explain. Is it, is it about A, knowing God, or B, is it about getting some principles for life or having a guidebook, a self-help manual? It is true. It is true. The Bible is filled with practical wisdom. And, as I think Alistair Begg makes clear from the sort of the, the title of his ministry, Truth for Life, all biblical truth bears on life. It's always practical and relevant when we come to the Bible. But here's the thing. Life is not about, or the Bible is not about, us coming alongside and getting some prac apps for life. It's not about just filling up this, this backpack of tools so that I can live life well. It's not about that. The Bible is about God. And therefore, every time we read the Bible, it should begin with an eager desire to encounter him, to know him, to see him in his glory. And out of that, God will direct our lives and lead our lives and he'll show us his will for us. But it begins with God. So our Bible reading 
must start there, especially if the Bible starts there. Our Bible reading should start there. What about our theology? Our theology must start with God. And here's what I mean. Our theology begins with this one truth. God's grace. God's grace is the foundation for everything that we do here as a church at Four Corners. It must be. That God's grace is the foundation upon which we put everything. Why are we here? Because of God's grace. Why do we know him? Why do we take delight in singing these songs that we've sung this morning? Because of God's grace. Why do we have Bibles to read? Why do we have a heart for him and for other people? Because of his grace. So our theology, as the Bible starts with God, our theology must also start with God. And finally, there's many things you could say here, but finally, our daily deeds must start with God. Let me ask this question. How much of your daily life is just monotony? How much of your life is you just slogging through the day? Without, you know, I mean, you're a Christian. You love the Lord. Maybe you start the day even reading the Bible. But you're just slogging through the day. You're just going through, you know, when's lunchtime? When's the next break? You know, when's dinner? When are the kids going to be down to bed? Uh, whatever it is, you're just sort of, you're slogging through the day, moving through, boom, another day, boom, another day, another day. The Bible presents to us a life that begins with God's glory. And that God's glory is found in every deed, every act, every facet of our lives. So there is no mundane. There is no pointless. There's no wasted 10 minutes. There's no wasted hour. There's no wasted set of tasks. It's all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We looked at a book. The gospel at work in Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about the fact that we don't serve, we're not serving others, we're serving God. Whatever we do, we do it heartily as unto the Lord and not for men. So God's glory. And what about God's eyes? That God sees everything. Do we begin all of our deeds with God's eyes or are we focused on the eyes of other people? So these are just a few things that we get out of this notion that we start with God. Is God your starting point? Are you starting with God in 2018? In every facet of your life, is he the beginning? So it is clear to us that the beginning begins with God, but what do we learn about this God? Just from this opening verse, and I think there are four attributes or characteristics of God that we see here just from this first verse and with the last one leaning into the next two verses. So this is where we're going to spend our time today. These four characteristics that God is, he's the eternal God, he is the creator God, he's the distinct God, and then finally he is the triune God. So let's begin with the first one. He is the eternal God. God. When we come to these opening words, in the beginning, God, we are reminded of the fact that God precedes the beginning of everything. I was recently listening to a debate between uh, the well-known Christian apologist and Oxford mathematician, John Lennox. I don't know if you've heard him uh, debate before, but you, you should look him up. 
Uh, he has debated so many of the world's leading atheists and skeptics and agnostics. He's, he uh, has a way of communicating in a very clear and yet very astute way the truths of the Christian faith and defending the faith in the public square. But I was recently listening to a debate that he had with Peter Singer. Don't know if you've heard of Peter Singer. He's a moral philosopher who teaches at Princeton. He's very well known uh, for his atheism, very well known as, as being an unbelieving moral philosopher. And in this particular debate, Peter Singer repeated a question of the well, other well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins, whom you've probably heard of, the God delusion, uh, years ago. But he, he quotes, he comments on, or he reiterates this, this question that Richard Dawkins asks, and it's simply this, who created God? Who created God? He always wants to sort of go back to that question. And to the Christian, that is an entirely illogical, nonsensical question. It's the wrong question. It's not a valid question. Since God has no beginning by nature, he has revealed himself as being intrinsically and by nature eternal, infinite, timeless. All matter, space, and time began. All of it. But God has no beginning. So we hear these words in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Notice that. Now you were God. You will be God. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And we hear these words in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Where God sends Moses to the people to rescue them. And he says this to Moses. Say to the people of Israel this. I am has sent. I am has sent me to you. That's God's name. That's incredible. That's incredible in the context of the ancient world where all sorts of weird deities were worshipped. God reveals himself as existence. He reveals himself as the eternally existing one. I am has sent you. Revelation 22, 13, he said, the Bible says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I think this sets up a key idea for us as we consider God's eternality, that God is eternal. It sets up a key idea that we find later in the Bible. And that is this notion of eternal life. It is the eternal God alone who gives eternal life. And so before we go any further, let me just challenge you with this. Maybe as we come to Genesis, or maybe as you read a book about Genesis, or, or maybe you take interest in this topic or this particular book, maybe you're tempted to make it entirely intellectual or philosophical or scientific in nature. And maybe even here as a Christian, as we talked about going through Genesis, your thoughts are, man, I want to know about this topic or about that topic. Or I want to dig into this topic or whatever the case might be. Or maybe when you think about Genesis or you think about creation in particular, your mind goes to debate mode as you think about all of the issues that people might debate. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Because we see very clearly here at the beginning of Genesis 1, verse 1, God's eternality, it reminds us of the fact that eternal life 
is at stake. As we see the eternal God who gives eternal life, as we encounter that, we are realizing as we enter into Genesis, as we enter into the Bible, that we're not talking about something that's merely intellectual or philosophical. We're talking about the difference between life and death. The Bible holds out for us these two ends. Life, which only God can give, or death. So that's the first thing we see about God is he is the eternal God. The second thing that we see is he is the creator God. Now we come to the first action, the first verb in the Bible. The first verb that we read in all of scripture is this, created. God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This reference to heavens and earth is the language of totality. It's the way of saying God created everything. And so whether we put, wherever we put the creation of angels, here we have the creation of, of the heavens and the earth. Wherever we put the creation of the angels, Colossians 1.16 tells us that God created all things visible and invisible. Everything, everything, everything that exists was created by God. And this verb bara is only used of God in the Bible and is used here in the singular. And what this, it's only used of God in all of scripture. And here we see it as a singular verb. What does that tell us? It tells us that God alone is the creator. And that stands in stark contrast to all of the polytheistic ideas about creation and deities in the ancient world. The Hebrews were a unique people in that they were monotheistic. They worshipped one God as compared to all of the other nations who were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And here at the very beginning of scripture, we are told there is one God and he alone created all things. Not the many gods of ancient Mesopotamia or Canaan or Egypt. You know, as you go through the, the story of Genesis, that's, those are sort of the three places where you, uh, where you find yourself. You're either in Mesopotamia at the very beginning as you have the Tower of Babel and then later with Abraham being called or his father Terah being called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That's Babylonia. That's, that's Babylon. And Mesopotamia, and then you have, uh, you have Abraham going to Canaan, and there you have, that's Palestine. And then you have at the end of the story of Genesis, you have the people of God in, in Egypt. And in all of these places, from the very beginning of the narrative all the way to the end, you meet these different gods. You meet these different creator beings. And what Moses delivers to the people from the Holy Spirit here in the wilderness is that all these gods that have been sprinkled throughout the history of the world and all these gods that the Israelites have come into contact with are no gods at all. They did not create anything. Only this one true God. And for us today, it is not chance, natural processes, matter itself, or even as some scientists have strangely suggested, alien life forms. It's none of these things who brought us and our universe into existence. But Berashit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created. 
And this fact of God as the creator has a number of important implications. As we think about, okay, so if God is the creator God, what does that mean for us? There's so many things that this suggests for us, but let me just entertain a handful of them. The first thing that it tells us, if God is the creator God, before we go any further, is that he governs everything. Now, this is eminently practical. Remember, I was talking earlier about practical prac apps for life and how we just pile those up. Well, this, the consideration that God is the creator and governor of everything he's made is eminently practical because of this. Every single moment of your life, every single circumstance and happening of our lives is governed by the God who made us and who made everything in the world. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his ordaining providential care. Nothing escapes his governance. If he made it, he owns it. And that means this for us, that we can be free in hardship. We can be free in all kinds of stresses and bad circumstances, knowing that God oversees it all and he's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can trust that because he's the governor of all of it. He could change your circumstance like that. And the amazing thing about it is that you've seen him do it. We have seen God step into our lives at key crisis moments, and we've seen him change things. We've seen him take away something that was just a thorn in the flesh, so to speak. We've seen him alter the course of our lives. We've seen him protect us from something, and had that he not stepped in and moved us to the right, we would have crashed into something, maybe literally or metaphorically. God has done it, and he can do it again. So when he doesn't, we must trust that he is governing rightly, that he is doing it according to the counsel of his perfect will and not get angry at God. It's so easy to get frustrated at him, but to say, Father, you made me. You made heaven and earth, and I trust you because you're overseeing all of this. Another practical implication of this fact that God is the creator is that not one single part of his creation is irrelevant. Think about that. God cares about every minute of your day because God made time. He cares about every minute of your day, which means we don't waste time because it belongs to God. He cares about our time. He even cares about the five minutes that we waste. He cares about all of our stuff. He cares about all people especially as we'll see he made people in his image this tells us that not one task that we do not one moment that we spend not one thing that we possess is irrelevant to the creator which means everything is underneath him and governed and cared for by him and what this does is it produces a great level of purpose and intentionality in our lives we're intentional and purposeful with everything The Christian is not one who wastes. We talk about being good stewards. That's not just an idea we like to throw around. It means this. It comes from this. We're good stewards because it's not ours. It all belongs to God. He made every bit of it, so we use it unto him because it's his. Another implication is that everything we have is from him. And this should, of course, give us gratitude. You might be tempted to pat yourself on the back for the great job that you have or the great savings account or retirement that you have saved up. God could take that away like that. 
Your health could disappear like that. Your money could be stolen and taken like that. Everything we have from moment to moment is a gift of God. And the fact that God is our creator reminds us that we must be grateful to him. His creation, his, the fact that he's the creator, God also points us to the fact that the creation points to him. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. Isn't that incredible? Do you see, child of God, do you see God's eternal power and divine nature clearly perceived when you go to the zoo or the aquarium or when you walk outside and you hear the birds Are you conscious of the glory of God manifested all around us, even in this room, as we here, sentient beings, sitting here listening and thinking and reasoning, breathing, because of God? It all points to him. All creation points to the creator. This tells us that humans should study nature and through it should glorify God. Him, that ferns and flies and fish and foxes and falcons and fossils, everything points to him, all of it. Not one aspect of this creation should lead us away from God. It should always lead us to him. And finally, it reminds us that every person is accountable to him and one day we'll give an account to him because he owns us. You exist because of this God, whether you believe in him or not. And you will stand before him. I will stand before him whether we believe in him or not. And we will give an account for our lives. Those who do not know him, uh, who, who do not have Christ dwelling within, who do not have Christ's blood covering them, will be punished eternally for their sins. Those who know Christ, their punishment has already been taken. But we will still stand before God and give an account to him for our works, for our deeds done in the body in this life. So it reminds us that the one who made us and who made all things that we interact with will one day hold us accountable for how we use it and how we use our lives. Thirdly, we see that God is the distinct God. As we consider God as the eternal creator of all, one thing becomes very clear. God is distinct. And this is what I mean by that. There is God and there is everything else. It's that distinct. There's nothing else that exists in this category. This is a category of one. Everything else, everything else, the highest angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, everything else exists on this line, on the creature side of the line. There is the creator and there is the creation. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul comments on the sinful idolatry of humankind. This is what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this. This is an indictment of humanity in our sin. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The verdict against humankind is this, that we exchange the worship of the invisible God who made us, we exchange that for the worship of created things that we can see and touch. And here's the important thing, that we can control. See, we like gods that we can control because then we can worship and do as we please. Because we could just exchange one God for another. We create gods in our own image, gods that quite like our sin, gods that are okay with our sin, gods that don't hold us accountable. And so we replace the immortal, eternal God with creaturely gods. The Israelites would have been familiar with many of these creaturely gods living in Egypt. You can go and just uh, get online or grab a book in the library and look at ancient Egyptian religion. Go to a museum. It's fascinating. Go through and see all of the mummies. It's one of my favorite parts of a museum. You can see all of the old Egyptian art. It's all religious. It's all religious. There was Ra, the god of the sun, Osiris, the god of the underworld, Horus, sky god of war and hunting, Set, the god of the desert and storms. And these gods were in the form of men, dogs, anteaters, crocodiles, falcons, and other sorts of things. These are the kinds of gods that year after year after year, the Hebrew people would have watched the Egyptians worship and bow down to and honor And what we have here, the very beginning of Genesis, is a very clear affirmation that God is distinct from dogs and anteaters and falcons and crocodiles and so forth. That there is no God, no man or no beast that can be put in the image of God. There is one God creator and then there is everything else. It tells us that God is set apart from everything. Absolutely nothing should compete with him in our lives. He alone is the holy and distinct God worthy of our worship. So let me ask you this question. In what ways have you lost sight of this? In what ways have you exchanged this distinct God for creaturely gods? What are the creaturely gods that are, that are vying for your affection? What are the creaturely gods that are vying for your mental energies or vying for your time? What gods have you brought alongside of this God who exists distinctly from everything else? What creaturely gods does the Holy Spirit of God want to purge from your life this year in 2018 and beyond? Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. I love the way the prophets speak about the idols of the nations. It's the reason the prophets were persecuted. They did not beat around the bush. They were very straightforward about the gods of the nations who had come in on the the Hebrews and the Hebrews were worshiping these false gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And you can imagine him looking up into the stars as he said that. It was the Lord who made the heavens. What did idols make? Nothing, because they don't exist. Finally, As we finish up this morning, in addition to the eternal God, the creator God, the distinct God, I want us to see the triune God. It is true to say that the Old Testament 
does not present us with a clear and developed view of the Trinity. We, we shouldn't say that uh, because the ancient Hebrews did not talk about it explicitly in explicit terms. There's, there's not a clear developed view of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's only in the New Testament as God's unfolding revelation begins to be made known. It's only in the New Testament that we get this truth clarified and developed for us that God is three persons, one being, the Trinity. But even here, and it's incredible, God would not have us doubt this for a moment. Even here at the very beginning of the Bible, we are given a hint of this doctrine. I want you to see it. Verse 1, in the beginning God created. And then look at verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then look at verse 3. And God said, his word, and God said. And it's interesting that this combination is essentially repeated in Psalm 33, 6. This is what the psalmist says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. By his word and by his breath, God made. So here we have God his spirit, and his word. And when we come to the New Testament, God, his spirit, and his word, to each of these is ascribed personhood. Each of these in the New Testament are described as speaking individually. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit speaks to the people of God. We see at Jesus' baptism that, the whole, the, that Jesus comes up out of the water, the Son, the eternal Word. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit, a distinct person, comes down upon him in the form of a dove, bringing us back, by the way, to this image at creation. And then the, and then the Father, God, speaks. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So here, even at the beginning of the Bible, we have this glorious truth presented for us that God is the triune God. Remember the passage that Mark read earlier, John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, that God made things through the Word who became flesh, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything made was made by through the word. Nothing. Not one angel. Do you remember in the New Testament when the demons fall down before Jesus? They say the Holy One of God. They knew that it was through him that they were even created. It was through Jesus. It was through the word, the eternal word that God made everything that exists. Hebrews 1-2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, Listen to what he says about the Son, the Word, Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and I love this, through whom also he created the world. We have it in Colossians, as I, as I cited earlier. All throughout the New Testament, we have this, this witness that God created through his Word. What do you think that's referring back to? It's referring back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 and following, where we have God speaking and everything happening. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. When God does something through his word, it happens. And as we close this morning, I want us to see that this all brings us to the Lord Jesus. Even here. Even here. We're going to the Old Testament. Um, we're not leaving Jesus. 
Just FYI. So you might be thinking, you know, okay, so now we're going to the Old Testament. It's kind of before Jesus. Yes, it's before Christ came. It's before what we read, what we did during Advent. We looked at Christ's coming in the flesh. Yes, it is before that, long before that. But here, even at the beginning of the Bible, even at the beginning of the Old Testament, the beginning of Genesis, flashing before our eyes is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word. Even in these opening verses of the Bible, at the beginning of the law of Moses, we are already being prepared for the Lord Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were about him, including this, including what we see here in these opening verses. In the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say about the law and the prophets? He said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? To fulfill them. Here we see part of the law and later in Christ, we will see him fulfilling all of it. And I love this, John 5, 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Even here, Christ is being written of by Moses. I want to say this about a very important theme that we find throughout the Bible, and it's this, God's love. So I did not put up here the loving God. We'll get there. You see that throughout. But, but it anticipates, and this is why. Because when you ask the question where love begins, the answer is this. God is love. And how is that? How is it that God is love? It's a, it's a question maybe that we would answer too quickly and then move on. But here is how God is love. God exists eternally. In perfect community and fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So even, get this, even at the very beginning of Genesis, as we consider God and his Spirit and his Word, and our mind is immediately brought in light of the New Testament to the Trinity, our mind is then brought back to before the world began, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed perfectly in love for one another. And what that tells us is that everything that we are going to see throughout the Bible is going to demonstrate and be an outworking of this love. And in fact, what do you see in the opening chapters of, of Genesis when Adam and Eve sin in chapter 3? What does God do? He clothes them. He clothes them and he gives them a promise. In fact, it's like he clothes their body and he clothes their souls. He clothes their bodies with with clothing taken from an animal and he clothes their souls with a promise that one day Eve's seed will crush the seed of the serpent, the head of the serpent. And then what do we get? Even in Genesis 4, we get Cain. Cain kills his brother and God doesn't just wipe him out. Even Cain, this faithless murderer of his own brother, what does God do? God puts a mark on him to protect him. And then we see God's grace to Noah, the flood. Even though we see Noah getting off the ark, getting drunk, his son doing something wicked. And then after that, the Tower of Babel. And after that, on to Abraham and all of the craziness that you get later on with these maidservants and Jacob and all of it. And then the brothers of, ja the brothers of Joseph selling their brother into, into slavery. All throughout the narrative of Genesis, at every step of the way, grace, love, love. God is pouring out his love on people who don't deserve it. And this all brings us back to the Trinity, 
to the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who, which existed before the world began and which is being dispensed to us as those of us who are in Christ, that this love of God is in us that existed before the world began. So as we prepare for this series, let me challenge you with this. Yes, Genesis is interesting. Yes, you may have some questions that you want answered. Yes, you might be fascinated by the history of Genesis, much like you would be if you went to a, a museum, a large museum. But above all, do you know this God? Do you know this God? The eternal God, the creator God, the distinct God, the triune God of love. Do you know him? And does your life start with him? That's what Genesis is about. That's what we need to be thinking as we enter into this book. Have you received his word? Is your life governed by his spirit? Let's pray.